and this is Founder Coffee. Every three weeks, I have coffee with a different founder. We discuss life, passions, learnings in an intimate talk, getting to know the person behind the company. For this 28th episode, I talk to Chris Savage, co-founder of Wistia, a leading video platform for marketers and salespeople. Before starting Wistia, Chris worked as an editor of a documentary that ended up winning an Emmy Award. He then launched Wistia with his best friend, with the confidence that a small team could do something impactful. They together saw the potential of video and started a competition website for filmmakers. It finally pivoted into a video platform that helps businesses work effectively with video. We talk about how they grew Wistia from 2 to about 100 people, how they resisted acquisition offers and raised debt funding instead, how Chris' role evolved over time, and why you shouldn't do anything if you're not obsessed by it. Welcome to Founder Coffee. Hi Chris, it's great to have you on Founder Coffee. Thanks for having me. Uh, you are co-founder of Wistia. Uh, for those who don't know Wistia yet, must not be a lot of people, but for those who don't know it yet, what, what do you guys do? So we are a company based in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Um, and what we do is we have a platform that helps people market and sell better with video. Uh, so our core product, Wistia, we launched a long time ago. And it is allows you to basically control and measure the entire video experience on your site. So you can make your videos more effective. Um, you can better understand their impact on your audience. And we also have a product called Soapbox. It's a Chrome extension that lets you actually make videos. And so yeah. it's a really simple thing where you record your webcam and your screen simultaneously, and then you can create smooth edits between them so you can make something that looks professional really easily. Yeah. So if I understand it well, what you guys basically do over, let's say, embedding YouTube in your site is really making something that is better fit for marketers and salespeople uh, where they can exactly see who watched what, when, and I don't know, what else does it do? Yeah, so that's exactly right. You can So we track how every viewer watches our videos second by second, what they skip, what they rewatch. So you get a picture of how your audience overall is responding, um, which can help you make the content more effective in the future. We take mm -hmm. that data and we put it into other marketing platforms. So for example, we integrate with HubSpot. And what that means is you can take your viewing data and put it in HubSpot, and then you can understand which of the people in your like lead database are actually watching your videos. Mm -hmm. um, and so you can create automations and stuff like that. But there's even things like, because we're so focused on helping you and your site, our player is the fastest loading player on the internet. Um, we do a ton of hard work so that you get the SEO benefit so that YouTube doesn't. Like when you would embed a YouTube video on your site, what you're effectively doing mm -hmm. is making a link back to the YouTube page. And what that means is if you have core terms or things that people are searching for that are really important to your business, you're, you're putting your own page against that YouTube page. And guess what? YouTube does incredible SEO. And so yeah. <laughs> they, they're always going to beat you. And so you have to think about like, you have to think about the power of video. How, what is your strategy? If your strategy is trying to get traffic to your website, you're going to want something probably like us that gives you more control. You're still going to put your content on YouTube. You're just going to put it at the top of the funnel. If you are uh, a pure media play where you're just trying to get the views on YouTube and then make ad dollars or something, you're not going to want to use something like Wistia. Yeah. So basically, uh, okay. It's it's trying to make something that is better for marketing and salespeople. Is this, is this the initial thing you 
you started off with as a as a concept or has this grown oh, no. years? No, 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 no. <laughs> um, no, we we always knew we wanted to focus on video. Um, when we started, we started because we saw that the technology behind the online video is changing dramatically. And it used to be really hard and you had to be technical to make online video work. And it was very quickly because of some open source tools was going to become very easy. So we thought this is going to be a huge opportunity for video on the web. And the initial idea we had was we would make a competition website for filmmakers. Mm -hmm. We try to have a company, like a big brand, sponsor a competition where filmmakers could make an ad or a trailer or um, an episode of something or what have you. And we try to connect filmmakers and brands. And the hope was that the filmmakers would get a lot of publicity if they won a competition. The brands would get a lot of goodwill because people were doing the competition. Um, so we were excited about that. But we got like a few months into it and realized we don't have any connections to these brands. It's going to be really hard going. It's a two-sided market problem. And so we, after three months of starting the company, we were like trying different things and different things and different things. And it took us about a year to realize businesses are going to start to use video too. They value their time and will spend money to solve problems. Maybe we should focus on them. Yeah. Yeah. Makes sense. Uh, it's, it's like before you were do, doing anything with video or is that it just grew on you at some point and you started with you? Yeah, so I grew up, um, my dad is a computer science professor at Brown uh, University, and I and he's like a huge early adopter. So I grew up like around technology and, you know, getting a DVD player the day it came out and getting Microsoft Flight Simulator the day it came out and like all of these mm -hmm. things. And I was like, basically, you know, I remember when we got the internet in fourth grade, um, and I was just enamored with it and spending all of my time on it. Um, and then in college, I ended up focusing on doing like film and video mm -hmm. and my dream was to make movies. And so I, the kind of what ended up happening, I think is like those two things combined into what Wistia is. Yeah. Um, and it's funny cause even today, you know, we made this huge piece of content last year. Um, called 110100, which is like a feature-length documentary in four parts. It's an hour and 42 minutes long. We, it's It's been really fun to do as well, really well received, just want a webby, all this stuff. And it's like, wow, this is what I dreamed of doing 15 years ago. I just didn't think it would happen like this at all. <laughs> yeah. So it's, it's basically like a, a few pieces falling together in terms of background and, and your passions and and... And that's basically it's a. It seems like great, like founder startup fits. Yeah, and I think it's also I my co-founder and I were best friends before we started the company and have continued to be best friends. Um, we love like working together, and we love the process of trying to solve hard problems. Like that's what gets us excited, mm -hmm. and so we found that it was funny because even in the first year, you know, we made no money. We just like subsisted on almost nothing. Um, because we were living in a giant house that had a million people in it. Um, yeah. and then it still was really hard going for many years, but you know, even though we were making no money or then very tiny amounts of money and barely able to afford, we couldn't afford like a new printer at one point. Um, we loved the challenge 
And the cool thing has been like, I've been doing this almost, it'll be 13 years in June and the challenges are still super fun. And so it feels like this, like very, very fortunate thing that we found actually pretty early um, that we like solving these types of problems and we like creative thinking and we like being in charge so that we can screw things up and it's okay. And mm-hmm. you know, trying to create a place where other people can feel like they can innovate um, and are encouraged to do so. And so, yeah, it's just been, I feel very fortunate. Yeah. Yeah. I, I'm on your LinkedIn profile here and it looks like you only had one job before this for about three years. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. And that was in, in movie, movie making. That's right. Cool. Uh, how was the, 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 the jump exactly from, from being an editor at big orange films to starting your own company? You know, it's interesting because so that um, was a that company, Big Orange Films, did this documentary, mm-hmm. and um, I started on the documentary as an intern. So I never, you know, really made much money when I was there. It was very, very meager. Um, and, but because we were a very tiny team, and well, I started as an intern. I was at that time um, to do the editing. You would record all of the stuff. Uh, we recorded on DV film, but you didn't want to run the DV film through the um, tape player too much because it would actually ruin it. So mm-hmm. every time we shot like an interview or something, we would copy it to VHS. I would take the VHS and I would rewatch it over and over and over and transcribe all the interviews. So mm-hmm. we had all, like I manually did that for a summer. And then we took the interviews and we started to try to edit together the story from those transcriptions. Um, and I just like, wouldn't really go away. I was in college while I was doing this work. And so I thought it was really fun. And I ended up shooting interviews and editing and ended up being one of the producers on that project. And so, and we actually did really well. We won an Emmy and got won all these film festivals and stuff. And it was incredible to be a part of a super tiny team and mm-hmm. see what we could do. Like it was fundamentally like three or four people really working on that movie. And yet with these three or four people, we were able to make something that people really liked. And um, so when we jumped into Wistia, I had that confidence that a small team could do something impactful. Like it didn't even really occur to me that Brendan and I wouldn't be able to be successful because it felt like, well, if we can work on this movie for a while, but that wasn't even my movie. And I was trying to convince someone else the things I thought were like the best things to do in this case was like, well, Brent and I are going to be in charge. We can do whatever we want. There's no one stopping us. Like that'll probably be really fun. And we assumed we'd be successful. We actually assumed we'd be successful in six months uh, and we'd sell the company. And obviously that didn't happen. And, uh, but um, yeah, it was, it was an interesting transition. So part of it was really easy. And part of it was, was really, 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 really hard because we're doing something completely new, figuring out everything up by ourselves and things were much slower going. It took much longer than I thought they would. Yeah. So if I hear it well, your initial, uh, like motivation of, of starting Wistia was, um, working with a small team, making something successful, selling it off. How did that like evolve in the meantime? Uh, how do you look at, at building Wistia right now? Yeah, so that was the initial goal. Was that Brian would start the company and sell it in six months, and um, you know, after a year of not really making much progress, but really enjoying it, and then 
you know, a few more years later after raising some angel money and getting customers and still being tiny, but really enjoying it, things just started to shift um, where we started to realize like, it's not, it's not about the, the end. You know, it's not just about the outcome for us of selling a company or something. It's actually the journey of building it. That is the fun part. And um, we faced a really big decision in 2017 because we had three different companies try to acquire Wistia at the same time. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if you're running a tech startup, people will poke around and there's lots of different ways to get acquired. Um, and we'd always just ignored all of those people who were poking around. But in 2017, the company was probably 80 people. We've been pushing really hard to try to um, grow revenue. And we've been actually kind of acting like we'd raised a lot of money. We've never raised a lot of money. Um, we only did two angel rounds and raised a million dollars. But we'd become profitable and we'd saved up money. So we were reinvesting everything into growth. And um, as these acquirers came along, Brennan and I started talking to them. And then actually got some offers and we're sitting there with an offer thinking, oh, maybe we should sell the company. And uh, it was interesting because, you know, when you're faced with that decision, that's obviously why, that's why we thought we started the company. That's why most people, when they talk about doing startups, aren't talking about it for like the journey they're going to be on. They're talking about it for the exit. Mm -hmm. You raise money to then get acquired. And so we were sitting there facing this like acquisition offer and realized if we sold the company, we would try to do our time at whatever the company that would buy us, which was going to be two years. And then we'd probably go and we'd work together again. And we'd start up something new. And we had an idea of the space that we'd work in because we felt like there's other problems we want to solve that we hadn't solved. But an idea of the type of culture we'd want to build and the type of brand, who we would want to hire. And we realized we would try to rebuild Wistia. And... (laughs) It was funny because we we thought we'd rebuild Wistia and we started to realize like, well, what's wrong with Wistia now? Like, why are we even considering selling? And we realized that we were kind of actually unhappy at that moment. Um, and we were not happy with how we were running the company, of the decisions we were making. We weren't long-term focused enough. We weren't taking the right creative risks. And so what we ended up deciding to do was not to sell. But the second we decided not to sell, that actually made us misaligned with our angel investors who, you know, we had only raised a million dollars, but they had put a million dollars in and angel investors expect to make money. So they obviously wanted us to sell. And we'd also given options to our stock options to our employees. And so we also told them these stock options will be for when the company sells. So if we're not going to sell, we're going to need to do something. And so that was like June of 2017. And we decided that what we wanted to do was do a deal to kind of take back total control of the company and get a return for everybody and be clear that we're trying to build a lasting business. And so we ended up raising um, debt because we had not been running the business profitably. We'd been putting everything back into revenue growth. Mm -hmm. So we didn't have the cash. So we ended up raising $17.3 million in debt um, and using that to basically give people an offer as if we'd sold the business um, to our angel investors and to the team. So they could all get liquidity. And then we told everybody, what we're going to do is we're going to flip the company back to being profitable. We're going to focus on the long term. We're going to do creative work. And that's where we think we're going to do our best work. 
And if it doesn't work out, then Brendan and I will have taken on this risk, but we will have taken care of everybody else because they will have gotten a return and we'll have to figure out what to do. Um, mm-hmm. But it felt we felt comfortable with it because it was like that it was kind of felt similar to starting the business in the first place, like taking a bet on ourselves um, again. And we did that deal in um, November of 2017. Yeah. And how many of the angel investors and employees actually wanted their money at that point? So it's interesting. It was an interesting mix. So the angels, some of them sold completely. Some of them sold partially. Um, we had a couple who didn't want to sell at all. That's of course mm-hmm. the funny thing about angel investors is you have to have a good amount of money to be an angel investor. And so when someone comes back and they say, "Here's some money," like, "Well, I don't really need it." You're like, "Great." Yeah. <laughs> um, and with the employees, we told them, and what we did is we instituted a profit sharing program. And so we said. If you are still a stock option holder, that's fine. Um, but that's going to be the way that you're incentivized. And if you're not a stock option holder, then you'll get profit sharing. And so for most people, it was a better deal to sell their shares and then also get um, profit sharing. Mm. Um, and it's worked out incredibly well. I can't even tell you how well it's worked out. Um, well, I guess I can because we're talking. <laughs> but... Uh, yeah. Um, the, the funny thing was that once we instituted profit sharing, it made the financials of the business way more real for everyone. And so we started, you know, we always had disclosed our financials to the team on a monthly basis. And the first time that um, Heather, my VP of finance, got up there and said, all right, here are the numbers. Um, this is how we did. This is how profitable we were. Does anyone have any questions? There's all these hands that shot up saying like, why are we spending so much money on this? Why are we not spending enough money on that? Like basically you could see how the profit sharing would have a very, or the, the, how the business was being run would have a very direct impact on yourself. And when you're building to sell a company, it's all fuzzy. It's all, it's really hard to tell if something, you know, are you going to get a 4X valuation on your revenue? Are you going to get a 10X? Are you going to get a 100X? Like, well, it depends on what size you are and how fast you're going and what market. There's all these factors. So it's kind of like impossible to understand the value. And then with profit sharing, it's very possible and very clear. And so it really, it aligned the company. And so we ended up like last year, 2018 was incredible. We ended up growing faster than we expected, being more profitable than we expected. And that was all because the team got excited and aligned and we got focused. Um, and you know we worked on the right things, and so it was really cool to see it work. Mm-hmm. So, so along the way, you haven't picked up any any equity venture funding. Let's say, is is that a conscious decision uh, of not doing that, or? Yeah, that that's a very conscious decision. So we never had any venture financing, and the reason was that we were concerned about uh, the incentives being misaligned. Hmm. So, you know, if you go look at the venture math, the way that it works is that the people running the venture fund take a fee to manage the fund, and then they take a percentage of the returns. And they have a very long time horizon, which is usually good, which is, you know, 10 plus years, 10 to 14 years for like an early stage fund. And so the way that venture guys and gals make a lot of money is by making, getting really big funds and then living off the management fees. And as long as it looks like your companies are performing well, you can raise another fund that's bigger and people believe you're doing good work, even though you haven't actually gotten returns yet. Um, And 
that's the first piece. And then the second piece is that the way that it, the funds work is they need to have a few companies that return a whole fund that are way more than a 10x return, like a 20x return or a 100x return. And without that, you're not going to have like a usually a very good returning fund. And so it's for the venture investors, they're incentivized to encourage every company to be a 100x company, which mm-hmm. seems like a good thing if you're an entrepreneur until you're actually running a company and you realize, oh, I can get a 10x on this or an 8x, or I just love what I'm doing, or you know, I want to be more patient or whatever. And a venture investor does not like... That's not helpful, usually. And so they're encouraging you to, to run the company as fast as possible. And you're sitting there thinking, I have a valuable thing. Maybe this could be you know, a $20 million business that I'd love to run. And I could have you know, great products for customers, great experience for my team. I could have a big impact on my community, but that's basically irrelevant for venture investors. And so we always were trying to protect our optionality and felt like if we signed up for that, um, we'd be giving up this, this thing we were building. And had we done that, I think we would have, we would have failed uh, mm-hmm. because we pushed too hard at some of the moments that would have broken us um, instead of giving us like actually an advantage of being able to be more patient and, and more long-term. Yeah. So, so you guys are, are in it for the long run. You're your co-founder. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So let's say if I would say in the next 10 years, then you see, still see yourself working at Wistia. Absolutely. Yeah. So, so if, you're, if you're thinking that long term, where do you see your business going um, in that period? Like where, where do you see the future of video for marketing and salespeople? So I think there's a lot. It's really interesting because the market is very large. Um, and so <clears throat> there's a whole segment of the market that we still talk to that is, it seems crazy, but they're just getting started with video. Mm-hmm. And there's op- often because I think video can be so scary. Like people will say to me like, oh, video can be really impactful on your brand, but it also could really hurt you, right? And I'm like, yeah, mm-hmm. <laughs> if you make a really bad video, you look like a joke. And if you make an amazing video, you look incredible. Um, and that scares a lot of people away until there's that one person in the organization that says, yeah, I think we got to do it, or I trust myself, or I trust this outside production company, or I think that our market will like authentic video or whatever. And that person takes a risk and then it works. And so it's been this interesting thing in our market where it's actually slowed the growth of the market over the long term which seems like a bad thing, but for us, we're so patient that it's been fantastic. So we have a ton of people who still have to figure out how to get confident using video well, how to get confident on camera. Um, and we try to help them with things like Soapbox. And I think we're going to see more, more technology that helps you make videos that look professional. Yeah. So, so you're, you're going a bit away from the delivery and the analytics, more towards helping with production. That's part of it. And I think we're doing that, but we're seeing, I think you're going to see tons of companies attempt products that help you with the production of video. And they're going to do like a more automated creation of video, automated editing, automated filters. You're just going to see way, 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 way more options for people who have never made a video. And you're going to try this product and you're going to look at the video and be like, do I think it's good or not? Like, and I, I think we're going to see a lot more of that. We're just kind of scratching the surface there. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And then I think like the way that video is used in the space is going to change because, you know, where Wistia sits today <clears throat> is we help people mostly with the video on their website. And it turns out if you have no video on your website, you're probably missing an opportunity because just like we live in a world where expectations have changed and if people, there's people who want to read stuff and there's people who want to watch stuff and there's people who want to listen to stuff. And so if you don't give those people who want to watch something a way to watch, they're going to move on to the next thing. And so you kind of have to do that. So there's an opportunity there and our products are really centered around that. Um, but a few months ago, we launched a, a product called Channels that lets you build a Netflix-like experience on your website of mm -hmm. collection of videos. And we think that people are going to make more content that is educational and entertaining that lives on their site that they can control. And, uh, you know, if you look at YouTube, you look at Facebook, you look at Twitter, you look at LinkedIn, they're all really powerful social networks that are constantly changing the rules on you. And they're doing that because they need to monetize with advertising. And so inherently you have to think of those as like a collection of audiences that you can try to get in front of, in front of, but there's no guarantees. Um, and so we think more and more people are going to invest in trying to own that experience themselves. Mm -hmm. And um, we're going to start to see more video content that is basically not just optimization focused, but engagement focused. Yeah. Yeah. And, 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 and also you keep people more to your site, I guess, because uh, like, like earlier today, I read someone on a Facebook group who said, hey, how can I turn off these YouTube-related uh, videos? Uh, Which you can't, yeah. Yeah, because uh, we, we also see the, the issue because you, you, you basically post like um, an onboarding video or something, like a video that yeah. explains your software. And then just, yeah. just after your video, they play the comp competition. Which yeah, they changed, they changed the rules on that like five months ago. Yeah. Literally every single YouTube embed on the internet, if you had it turned off, which you could turn it off before, they're like, nope, you can, related videos now. Mm -hmm. And if you know what you're doing, you can set it up so that it's only your videos, but they still, the related videos, when you click them, it brings you back to YouTube. Mm -hmm. So it's like, I mean, that's what you, you're, it's a free, it's a free service. And whenever you're using a service that's totally free, you have to remember, you are the product. And so they're using your traffic on your website and your viewers to drive more people to watch things on youtube.com where they can serve them more ads and they mm -hmm. make more money. And that's just how it works. Mm -hmm. And that, when they did that, it was not surprising to me at all that they did that. Um, and people were upset, but it's been free the whole time, you know, and there was, they had to, they had to make money at some point and they've sure. been making a lot of it, but that's just, that's just how it works. Mm -hmm. Enough a bit about video. Um, you guys are now like about a hundred people, right? Uh, yes. Yep. You started off with the two of you. Yep. How did your role change over time, and how has it changed recently? Uh, what is it that you are busy with right now? So, my role has changed um, a ton. I mean, in the early days. <laughs> you know, my title was CEO, but I was blog writer, um, support responder, social media manager, you know, product designer, uh, mm -hmm. everything. And 
Um, one of the hardest things about growing is you do something until hopefully you get good at it. And then just when you're getting good at it, you have to find somebody when the company can sustain this, so you can have to find someone who can take that and do it better than you. And you do that over and over and over and over again. Um, so you're constantly figuring things out and handing them to somebody else, which at some point you build confidence. You can do that. And that's exciting. Um, but that as that happens, like the other thing that happens is that you're more responsible for like communication internally and externally and thinking longer term. Um, and that was one of the surprising things to me is in the early days, it was just Brendan and I, we had a ton of time, right? And so we're just coming up with wild ideas for things we could do to um, get people to pay attention to us, things we could do to build on the product. Um, you, you have time and, and with that time, you, you spend it on creative thinking, you spend it talking to potential customers and all that kind of stuff. Then everything gets super insanely busy. You feel like you have no time at all and you're scrambling, 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 scrambling to just make things work. And then at some point, if you've given up enough in ownership to other people in the company who can do those things better than you, you end up again with time. And you have, the time is actually incredibly important because you have to think longer term. You have to spend more time doing the stuff you're doing at the beginning, like talking to prospective customers, thinking about shifts that are happening in the market. Um, and it actually is work. It's the same work that it was in the beginning. Um, it just feels weird because it's this big transition. So today I spend my time trying to think about where things are going, looking at what our customers are doing, what our challenges are that our customers have, what our partners are thinking, what other entrepreneurs are thinking. Um, and I try to make it hopefully a little bit easier by thinking long-term. I try to make it easier to make some of the short-term decisions that we have to make. Yeah. Yeah. So you're basically in charge of forming strategy based on what you see and what you hear and right and then communicating that to your team yeah if, if i would if i would ask you now what 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 keeps you up at night lately like in the last few weeks or months what would that be um that's a good question i mean i am sleeping pretty well right now <laughs> so that's good my children uh <laughs> um children waking me up um is probably the thing that gets me up the most i mean we're doing a lot of um new big and different things that we've done before which is exciting and i would say that the, i lose sleep when i worry that like we're not thinking big enough or um I think we're going to be behind on something or whatever. But the, these days, like the company is so well, like operates so concisely and clearly, and we have clear goals and clear responsibilities and stuff that the things that are, I don't know, there's not a lot of stuff that keeps me up to, at night in the short term. Mm -hmm. Was this different at any point? Or? Oh, yeah. Oh, of course. My gosh. I mean, yeah, there's been years where I've like, where we were running the business, pushing the business really aggressively and losing money that I was up at night all the time and super, super stressed out because in those years, like before we did the buyback, um, we were, you know, at one point we built a strategy and we're like, all right, we're going to lose, we're going to start aggressively losing money, trying to grow faster. And so every month, even though you talk about investing in long-term things, if you're losing a hundred thousand dollars in February, 
and you plan to lose 130000 in March because you're hiring and you're spending more money on advertising and other stuff. If you're behind in your revenue, and you, instead of being down 150000 you're down one hundred eighty. These all things that's happened. Things start to get stressful because you start looking at that burn thinking, wait a second, we were profitable. Like we could last forever. And now we're losing money. And if these things that we're attempting don't work, we're going to lose money even faster. That's going to increase the stress. That's going to increase the short-term focus. That's going to decrease our ability to do the work that we think is our best work. Mm -hmm. Um, So yeah, I've had years of having, you know, sleeping poorly, being super stressed. Um, I would just say at this moment, we're running the business profitably and thinking long-term it allows you to handle bumps much more easily. Yeah. And how do you think you got from, from that place a few years ago from to where you are now? What are the, the key things you did to, to get from here to there? Well, the other way around. I mean, so the buyback was the first thing and realigning everyone on what we were doing. Mm-hmm. Um, raising the debt forced us to be profitable, which we knew would be a good constraint. And that forced focus and prioritization. And that was all really helpful. Um, that changed who wants to work here because we had some people who were just here for an exit and they essentially got one. So they left. Um, and then the people we've hired are here for the journey. And so we're doing like better work than we've ever done. Uh, it ch- we changed who was on the senior management team. And we went from a place where it was like unclear what that team was to a very clear, very well-run team with everybody on it, like completely owning what's happening in their departments. So that changed what I worried about um, and what I could think about. And so, I mean, there's a, you know, an enormous list of things that have evolved and changed and gotten us to a place where, um, yeah, it, it lets me sleep easy at night, which I think is actually important because that also is the same thing that lets you think about the longer term things and have more confidence in doing bigger things. Mm-hmm. You mentioned that you, you as a founder, subsequently have to uh, take things that you're doing and that you're good at at that point and then find someone who does it better and always work on delegating the next thing. Are there any things left you think you can delegate at this point and what would these things be? You know, it's funny you say that. There, there definitely always is something that I think, how will I delegate this? Like no one else can do this. And then six months later, I'm like, yep, someone else can do it. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I, I think it's, it's like interesting. So maybe three years ago, we had no one at Wistia whose title was research. Mm-hmm. And so research on the market, research on customers, research on what they were doing was a very shared thing. But that felt like something that I was, I was spending my time, a good percentage of my time when I had it, trying to figure out, like, what do people want? And then over time, we realized we could actually structure that and have it be a real, real role. And there's people who could do that a thousand times better than me. And my approach was very haphazard and their approach was very methodical and thoughtful. And so now we have, I think, like, three or four people in research. And it's just like, you know, simple example of something that like didn't seem like it could be delegated. And it turned out it was like in many people's jobs, they could do it like far better. Mm-hmm. Um, so stuff that happens, that continually happens. And I think it just comes down to looking at how you're spending your time and trying to figure out like, 
am I am I delegating solutions or am I delegating problems for people to solve? And for a long time, you're delegating solutions that you've come up with, and then you are delegating the problems to solve, and then you're delegating the finding of the problems. Yeah, you know, then you're delegating the evaluating of the problems that are found, and so it just keeps it keeps going as the company grows. Yeah. And then the next step is what is like the definition of what constitutes a problem or <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So it's, it's exactly. basically, you just have to give away like overall strategy and, and you can just let the business run by itself. Yeah. And the funny thing though, is like, even if you give up pieces of strategy, what you end up getting is like more leverage of people who are digging deeper on things coming back. And so the decisions that you're making are inherently longer term, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and that also lets you, at least for me, it lets me like weather ups and downs much more easily and have much more confidence in terms of like the direction we're going in. Because I see people do, you know, we have lots of competition <clears throat> and you'll see them do things like, oh, that's similar to something we just did. But it's like you dig in a little bit deeper and it's like, do they get what we're doing? or not and you're like up oh, from how they do it they don't know what we're doing we know what we're doing we know where we're going over the long term and so you just you can end up in a really different spot but without that time and without the team and without the talented people around you and that process you wouldn't be able i think to it's just a lot harder to build out that that long-term vision that is actually being fueled and updated and evolved based on what's happening yeah in, in, in all these things you're doing, uh, what is it for, for you? What is it that gives you energy at this point? Has this changed over time? Is it still the same thing? I mean, I get energy from working with um, incredible people. And I get energy from delighting customers. Um, and... I get energy from trying to come up with, you know, creative solutions to problems. And and that for me means like solutions that people haven't done before. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it's, it hasn't actually changed. It's no. just like, it's just the mix of stuff and it's the scale of the problems. You know, the problems that we're solving are bigger than they used to be. No. Um, but it feels, it feels similar to when we were, you know, 10 people. But it's a bit more abstract, I guess. It's it's not as direct anymore where a customer says, I have this issue and you solve it for them. It's more taking that on a, on a way higher level and then uh, like going across the scale of all your customers and then saying like, this is like a major thing we should be working on. Or do I see yep. it incorrectly? Exactly. Yeah. Cool. A bit about like you guys are based in Cambridge, Massachusetts. You said, "Yep." Are there any other cool startups we should know of uh, around there? Um, yeah, there's a there's a ton. I mean, um, it's funny. There's a lot of like B two B marketing stuff here. Yeah, uh, and SaaS stuff. So um, you have like AppQs which is close by. They're doing great um, and really fun. Like Jonathan, their founder, worked out of Wistia for the first like year he was working. So it's amazing to see them doing so well. Mm-hmm. Um, Help Scout was here for a long time and has a presence here. Um, Litmus, 
um, Insight Squared, HubSpot obviously is here. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, there's there's a ton of companies that are here that are that are you know full of full of bright, excitable people. Why do you think it's so much Martech? Uh, is that is that linked to the university or? You know, I feel like it's like people always said that the investors in Boston were more conservative, mm-hmm. and a lot of SaaS you can you can do such a rigorous analysis on it um, when you're looking through the unit economics. I think it lends itself pretty well to this like investor base. Um, there are some consumer companies that have done really well here. Uh, actually, there's a fair amount of them, like TripAdvisor and Kayak and. Uh, Wayfair mm-hmm. and um, Simply Safe, um, they've all done incredible. But there's a lot of it. I think there's something about the investor mix that it just lends itself well to SaaS and SaaS. You know, there's a lot of marketing in SaaS, and I think that's probably like credit to HubSpot, credit to Constant Contact. Um, that you know, Drift is here. There's there's just a lot of there's a lot of interesting like martech here yeah and yeah i don't really i mean that's the best guess that i have if you have a better one i'd love to hear it no <laughs> i uh i i'm not operating in boston obviously it's uh it seems like uh when i look at boston from here it looks, looks like a, a place with a lot of smart people with big universities uh great research facilities and all that and it seems Kind of logical, I guess, to have more the analytical part of tech and more B2B. Uh, I never thought about the more conservative investors, but it seems like a plausible explanation. That's what people will talk about here when they complain about stuff. Mm-hmm. Obviously, people complain. Yeah. Nah, they're like, These investors here don't take a risk. Like, blah, 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 blah. Okay. Great. I mean, it's just, that's, that's what I hear is the complaint. It's like, yeah. Uh, we, I mean, we never raised, yeah. We never raised venture here or anywhere. Mm-hmm. So I'm, it's like a step removed from it all. But. Yeah. Yeah, obviously. Slowly wrapping up. Uh, what's the latest good book you have read and why did you choose to read it? Hmm. It's a good question. What is the latest one that I really liked. Um, and why did you read it? Why did I read it? Uh, I read Shoe Dog by Phil Knight recently, mm-hmm. the founder of Nike. Awesome book, right? Yeah, really enjoyed that. And I just, I love the behind the scenes of how companies are built. Um, it's pretty relevant to what I'm doing. Yeah. And um, I just like, it's, it's just normal people trying stuff, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and I feel like so often we miss the story that tells, you know, gives you the full, the full context. And it's just like normal people trying to figure stuff out. You know, usually it's like extreme persistence or, you know, a really unique founding team or the right time in the market or whatever. And that it's the people who are fortunate enough to figure that out and realize, wow, this is my, this is something I love doing. This is, this is something that has like hit in the market. Like I would be crazy to give this up. So I, I love those stories. Um, I also read recently how to change your mind um, by Michael Pollan, which is Pollan, which is a book about uh, psychedelics. 
Mm-hmm. And that was incredibly interesting. That is like very, very, very different. Um, but it's, uh, if you have any interest in that at all, which I didn't even realize I did, it is very, very, very interesting book where he talks about like the effect that has on the brain and, you know, how uh, kids' brains and very little kids, how they operate is like as if they're on LSD. And he describes a bunch of um, psychedelic experiences that, that he had, it was, it was, this is the same guy who wrote Omnivore's Dilemma, but I, I could not stop reading that book. I thought it was really, really interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm, I'm currently reading a book, um, in a similar area, a bit, a bit, uh, theoretical, I must say, Behave. Nobody okay. heard about it. Robert M. Sapolsky. Okay. Uh, it's, it's a bit heavy, so I'm struggling right now. Even though I had some medical background, it's still, (laughs) I'm reading it and I'm thinking. It's dense. (laughs) And especially because before it, I read Shoe Dog as well. And Shoe Dog was amazing. You could just read through it. It's like the most human uh, entrepreneur story I've ever read, probably. Yeah. Just the way he wrote it and all the details. It's, wow, it, it was great. Uh, and then I went to do this hugely theoretical book, which is very interesting, but it's still, it's a, it's a bit of a pain. Yeah. I, I hear you. No, cool. Uh, final two questions. Uh, is there anything you wish you would have known when you started out? Anything I wish I had known when I was starting out. There's a lot of things I would say. The, I would say work, like, I'm trying to pick the one. I think the most important thing that um, I have learned over these years is that you have to pick your co-founders wisely and you have to invest in that relationship like it is a marriage. You Mm -hmm. need to confront hard problems you have to celebrate wins. You have to be clear about how you are um, divide, dividing ownership. And I have watched over and over and over again so many other, you know, friends and founders like lose the importance of those relationships as they build their companies, or they meet someone that they've known for two weeks and then they start a company with them. Mm-hmm. And I think that you are you're signing up for a long journey. Even the companies that think that they're going to sell quickly, you just know, never guarantee you're going to sell quickly. Like quick is like five years, you know? And so if you don't feel like you really want to spend all your time with somebody, you want to go through the, some of the hardest moments of your life with them and the most joyful, if you don't, if you don't take that seriously, you can, that can easily sink you later. And I think we got really lucky then the early days we said, our friendship is really important. We put it first. We actually invested in it. And we've learned how to have hard conversations. Um, and so it may, means that we're aligned all the time and um, working on the right stuff and can do great work together. And that I feel very, very fortunate about that. And I, I think like, I, you know, I, I think we could have invested earlier in that. But if starting again, I would say, you know, for any founder, they should be asking themselves questions around that. Yeah, yeah. Definitely agree because it's at the core of it all, right? You can have a great idea, but in the end, it's it's two or three people, or I don't know, uh, starting out working together. If that fails, and you can you can uh, have a great idea, talk about building a great team and all that, but it's uh, it's gonna be hard. Totally. 
Finally, uh, a bit similar. Uh, what's the best piece of business advice you ever got? Um, I think the best advice was, it's, you know, it's funny. It's just changed. Like it's, I always think I've gotten the best advice and then we go through another challenge and I get the best advice again. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah, just with the challenge. I hear you. Yeah. I mean, at the early days, um, it, you know, I think it's like, probably it's it's finding a way to become like don't do something if you're not going to be obsessed with it mm -hmm. it's it's just too easy to give up and when there's too many challenges and you need like blind faith and um you have to truly become obsessed with with solving problems um and then i think like at some point my dad gave me advice which was, I was talking about, you know, our dreams of Wistia and said, you know, our dream is to get to $60,000 a year and revenue because Brendan and I can each make 30 and we'll be able to survive on that. My dad is like, look, if you're right about this thing, like it's going to be a lot bigger than that. You guys need to prepare for success. And you need to think through what would you do if this was successful? What are the moves you would make? What are the things you would say no to? And it was funny because there were some actually pretty big decisions we faced in the first few years where we said no to some giant customers and no to some angel investors and stuff because we tried to treat it like, well, if we are successful, we're still doing this in five years. Like, are we going to want those customers who don't feel like the right fit? Or are we going to want those angel investors who don't seem like they're aligned with us? And they felt like hard decisions to make at the time. And now looking back on it, they were some of the best decisions that we made um, only because we tried to imagine like, well, if we're actually doing this, we're actually successful. That weight of those bad decisions will live with us. Mm -hmm. um, and that turned out to be really good advice. Awesome. Thank you again, Chris, for being on Founder Coffee. Uh, it was really great to have you. Uh, thanks for having me. That's it for this episode of Founder Coffee. We hope you liked it. Let the world know if you did. Thanks for listening, guys.